Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, Judges chapter 9. This week we're going to begin to explore Judges chapter 9. The story of a fellow called Avimelech, or Abimelech as we more know him in English, And he's one of Gideon's 71 sons. And like so much of Judges chapter 9, it's just example after example, lesson after lesson, application after application of the God principles that we have learned in our extensive study of the Torah. It shows us what happens when those principles are followed faithfully. And what happens when they're abandoned. Before we do that, however, I want to reread the final six verses of Judges chapter 8 because it's the preface for what we're going to study today. So I'm going to read Judges chapter um, 8, verses 30 through the end. Gideon became the father of 70 sons because he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, and she too bore him a son whom he called Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophrah, in the Aviesri. But as soon as Gideon was dead, the people of Israel again went astray after the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. They forgot Adonai their god who had saved them from the power of all their enemies on every side, and they showed no kindness towards the family of Yerubbaal, that is, Gideon, to repay them for all the good he had done for Israel. Gideon ruled as a legitimate judge, a shofet, in Israel for 40 years. He was God-appointed, he was God-anointed, And he performed in the typical way of a judge. He was first a deliverer of some portion of Israel from the hand of an oppressor. And then he ruled for a time. As was also pretty typical. Very quickly after each judge died from old age. The people of Israel would harden their hearts. And they would revert to idolatry. Usually each cycle explains that the people forgot or abandoned Jehovah their God, despite the wonderful and fully visible things that he did for them. Here it adds that the people showed no kindness to the descendants of Gideon, called Yerubael, meaning Baal fighter. And in Hebrew it says that the people offered no chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed which in this context carries with it the concept of a covenant loyalty. Chesed in Hebrew culture then and today means acts of charity and mercy, kindness. It also tilts towards all of these acts being done out of a sense of faithfulness to God and to a lesser degree maybe loyalty to a person who merits loyalty. We know that while Gideon had officially and publicly rejected the offer of kingship over the people, yet in many ways he lived and behaved and in some ways ruled more like royalty. 
So there must have been some kind of a semi-formal relationship or agreement, maybe, between the central northern tribes of Israel that he judged over, such that his family, Gideon's family, was seen as the rightful ruling family, a concept quite different from that of the earlier judges, whereby a judge was less of an absolute ruler and more of a, of a magistrate. Thus, the context of this coming story about Avimelech is set in this background that shows that at least some portions of Israel were now warming to the idea of a monarchy ruling over them, and some of them wanted a king now. Now, there are four important lessons that we can learn from the story of Gideon. And these are going to carry over into this next chapter, chapter 9. And the first thing is that when God is the leader, when God stands with Israel, no man and no army and no power can stand against them. That a mere 300 Israelite men who were personally hand-picked by the Lord, could engage in a holy war against 135,000 enemy and prevail must be taken by those of us who read about it in the Bible as either a fantastic and legendary fairy tale or an astounding truth that really ought to get our attention. What joy and courage that ought to put into our hearts if we honestly believe what we casually say we believe, that the Bible is the truth. I only wish that all the people of modern day Israel could understand this. And rather than shove aside their election as God's chosen people and instead seek to blend and become as their neighbors because they don't want all that comes with being God's chosen, that instead Israel would race to embrace that. But as believers, we also need to understand that we, too, have been handpicked by God to be the soldiers of his kingdom. Just like that 300 of Gideon's, we're relatively few in the face of the billions on our planet who are God's enemies. And despite what some preach, we will always be the few until the Messiah returns to finish what he started. But if we're truly the Lord's, and if we're obedient and faithful to him, then he will lead us, and his purposes for us will not be defeated no matter the odds against us. The second lesson is that if anything of a positive nature occurs in the lives of God's people, it's God's doing. And he deserves all glory and honor for it. The third is that despite what might seem to be so, reality is that the world will never be the biggest roadblock to God's people carrying out God's will on earth. Rather, it's always going to be the lack of faithfulness of the believers. Just as Israel 
was problematic for God to work with. Even though they were chosen, they were set apart for Him, by Him. It's the same way with the church. Israel was redeemed, but they sure didn't always behave that way. The church is, by definition, a fellowship of the redeemed of God and Yeshua. But we don't always conduct ourselves that way, do we? In the end, we're still just people running around in these corruptible bodies of flesh, still fighting these evil inclinations within us that want to do wrong, even though God's very Spirit lives within us. Thus we saw the leaders of Sukkot and Penuel, who were fellow Israelites, fellow redeemed people, literally standing in the way of God's army of 300 who were pursuing God's enemies at God's direction. We saw an arrogant group of Israelites, Ephraim, who held themselves up as the best and most worthy of all Israel because they were the largest and wealthiest of the tribes in that era. You know, God didn't put that group in charge of his holy war. But they thought they should have been. So they did their part in trying to derail Gideon, or perhaps more to the point, they tried to jump in when they saw success and take over. Do we not see that exact thing? within the church today. There are those that believe by virtue of sheer numbers or the size of the congregational building or the amount of face time they have on TV. It is they that ought to be leading. And if they do not bless something, it ought not be done because it couldn't have been of God if they didn't ordain it. The fourth lesson is one that will set the stage for Judges chapter 9. It's a lesson about leadership. It is that those who accept a position of leadership at the call of God are going to face great temptation to abandon that position and the divine purpose of whatever the specific cause was for their own personal ambitions. Of course, personal ambitions can blind men. And thus, we tend to deny and rationalize it when we succumb to those temptations. Gideon rightly, and to his merit, rejected the temptation of kingship over his people. Yet, it seems that in reality he only rejected the title. Because he lived like a king. And instilled that same thought and his many sons. Further, he seemed to have no qualms of creating for himself a position as a sort of high priest, complete with ephod of the high priest, and even built a worship center in his hometown of Ophrah that was in direct competition with the official one where the wilderness tabernacle was set up at Shiloh. Shiloh. The result was that the Savior of Israel actually led the people right back to idolatry and rebellion. And the path was paved with his own 
ambitions, and the gold of that false ephod he anointed himself with. Because he was the leader of Israel, his family and the people of Israel were going to pay a terrible price. Let's move on to Judges chapter 9. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 281. Avimelech, the son of Yerubael, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with the whole clan of his maternal grandfather. And he said, Please ask all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 sons of Yerubael rule over you or that one person rule over you. Remember now, I'm your blood relative. His mother's brother spoke to all the men of Shechem and said all this about him so that they followed their feelings and supported Abimelech, arguing, well, after all, he's our brother. They also gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal Berit, and he used these to pay good-for-nothing thugs to follow him. He went back to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Yerubael. All 70 of them on a single rock, except for Yotam, Yerubael's youngest son, who stayed alive because he hid himself. All the men of Shechem and all of Bet Milo got together and went and made Avimelech king of the oak, a king at the oak by the cult pillar in Shechem. And when they told this to Yotam, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. Then God will listen to you. Once the trees went out to choose a king to rule them. And they said to the olive tree, Rule over us. But the olive tree replied, Am I supposed to leave my oil, which is used to honor both God and humanity, just to go and hold sway over the trees? So the trees said to the fig tree, You, come and rule over us. But the fig tree replied, Am I supposed to leave my sweetness and my good fruit just to go and hold sway over the trees? So the trees said to the grapevine, You come and rule over us. But the grapevine replied, Am I supposed to leave my wine, which gives cheer to God and humanity, just to go and hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, You come and rule over us. And the thorn bush replied, If you really make me king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the thorn bush and burn down the cedars of Lebanon. Here's the point. Have you been honest and straightforward in making Abimelech king? Have you been fair with Yerubael and his household and treated him as he deserves? My father fought on your behalf, risking his life, rescued you from the power of Midian, and now you are rebelling against my father's household. You've killed his 70 sons on a single stone and made Abimelech the son of his slave girl king over the men of Shechem because he's your brother. I say this, 
If you are dealing honestly and righteously with Yerubael and his household today, then may you enjoy Abimelech and may he enjoy you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and burn up the men of Shechem and Beit Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and Beit Milo and burn up Abimelech. Then Yotam fled, making his way to Be'er, and he lived there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech was chief over Israel for three years. But God sent a spirit of discord between Abimelech and the men of Shechem so that the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now this came about so that the crime against the 70 sons of Yerubael might be avenged and the responsibility for their bloody death be placed on Abimelech, their brother, who murdered them and on the men of Shechem who helped him to kill his brothers. So the men of Shechem sent out men to ambush him on the mountaintops. They robbed everyone who went past them, and Abimelech was told about it. Gaal, the son of a slave, came with his brothers and went on Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their trust in him. And they went out into the field, and they gathered their grapes, and they pressed the juice out of them. Then they held a feast and went into the house of their god to eat and drink. And there they insulted Abimelech. Gael, the son of a slave, said, Who is Abimelech? Think of the contrast with Shechem. Why should we serve Abimelech? Isn't he the son of Yerubael? Isn't Zabul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve Abimelech? If I were in control of this people, I'd get rid of Abimelech. Then, addressing his words to Abimelech, he said, Come out and fight. I don't care if you make your army even larger. When Zebul, the king of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of a slave, he was enraged. He sent messengers to Abimelech in Tormah with this message. Gaal, the son of a slave, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they're inciting the city against you. You and the men with you should come up now at night and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, get up early as soon as the sun rises and attack the city. Then, when Gaal and, and the men with him come out to fight you, do whatever you can to them. Abimelech and all the men came up with him by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four groups. Gaal, the son of a slave, went out and stationed himself at the entrance to the city gate. Then Abimelech and his men arose from their ambush, and when Gaal saw the men, he said to Zebel, Look! There are men coming down from the mountaintops. Zebul answered, Oh, you're seeing the shadows of the mountain as if they were men. And Gaal said once again, No, look, there are men coming down from the main hill in the land, and one group is coming on the road from Fortune Teller's Oak. And Zebul said to him, Well, where's your mouth now? You said... Who is Avimelech? Why should we serve him? Aren't these the people who despise who, who you despise? Go on out and fight them. So Gael went out, leading the men of Shechem, and he fought Avimelech. And Av- but Avimelech gave chase, and Gael took to flight. Many fell wounded, strewn, all along the way to the city gate. Then Abimelech took up residence in Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gael and his brothers so that they could not live in Shechem. But the very next day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told about it. And he took his men, divided them into three groups, and lay in wait in the field. 
When he saw the people going out of the city, he came out of hiding and he slaughtered them. Abimelech and his group rushed forward and occupied the entrance to the city gate, while the other two groups attacked all those in the field and killed them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, captured it, killed its people, destroyed its buildings, sowed its land with salt. When all the men in the fortress of Shechem heard about this, they took refuge in the stronghold of the temple of el Barit. Abimelech was told that all the men from Shechem fortress had gathered together, so he led all of his men up to Mount Salmon, where he took an axe in his hand, and he cut off a branch from a tree, and he laid it on his shoulder. And then he said to all those with him, Quick, do just what you saw me do. So they all did likewise, each man cutting off his branch, and they followed Abimelech. They put the branches up against the stronghold, and they lit them on fire, and burned down the stronghold, so that all the people from the Shechem fortress died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to uh, Tevetz, set up camp against Tibetz and captured it. But there was a fortified tower inside that city and all the men and women took refuge in it, everyone in the city. They shut themselves inside and went up into the roof of the tower. However, when Abimelech approached the tower and attacked it and then came up close to the tower's door in order to burn it down, a woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, cracking his skull. And he quickly called out to the young man that was holding his armor, Draw your sword and finish me off so that people won't say, A woman killed me. So his attendant ran him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went back home. This is how God paid back Abimelech for the wrong he did to his father in murdering his 70 brothers. God also repaid the men of Shechem for all the wrong they had done. On them came the curse of Yotam, the son of Yerubbaal. Quite a story. Well, this brief and ill-fated tale of Avimelech is, of course, the subject of Judges 9. And let me state up front that this man was not a judge. In fact, some scholars wonder why this episode is even included here. I think we'll touch on that reason in a little bit. Now, the story is somewhat of an antithesis of the previous two chapters, in that while Gideon was a common man, raised up by God to be a judge, and then serving the Lord in order to deliver his people from oppression, Avimelech was born into privilege, appointed himself as a leader of God's people, then served only his own personal lust for power in order to oppress his own people. That would be bad enough if it wasn't for Abimelech being Gideon's own son. The account of Abimelech makes it clear that his mother was his father's concubine. This is as opposed to a the large number of legal wives that Gideon had married. Now, a concubine was not some kind of personal prostitute, nor was she a slave. All right. but, but she did hold a somewhat lesser status in the household than a legal wife who was married under a hoopah, a traditional wedding canopy, and then supported by the legality of a ketubah, 
right, a, a marriage document. But one needs to ask the question, why Gideon had as many as possibly 70 legal wives, yet had this one unnamed woman as a concubine? Well, I can't be 100% sure, I think the reason is self-evident. The legal wives were Hebrew women, and thus they were legally entitled to a formal marriage ceremony and a formal marriage certificate. Avimelech's mother was not a Hebrew. She was a Canaanite of Shechem. Probably more accurately, she was a Hivite. Thus, Avimelech was born into a divided loyalty. He was part Hebrew, he was part Canaanite. Now this wouldn't have been all that unusual if it weren't for the fact that his father was the supreme leader of Israel and self-styled high priest. Thus we see in the first verse of this chapter that Abimelech must have been constantly at odds with his Hebrew siblings, all born to other mothers. And Avimelech also seems to have had a propensity to identify more with his Canaanite family side than his Israelite family side. Now, you know, that shouldn't be all that hard for us to imagine. I'm sure this, uh, rather, I've seen this exact dynamic in my own extended family and witnessed it in countless others. I'm sure many of you have a good understanding of this rather typical family challenge of divided loyalties and a tendency to build alliances and closer relationships with one part of the family as opposed to the other. Now, you know, it usually happens quite naturally. It's not from any kind of a plan or some kind of overt intent. But it can be. Now, we also witness this kind of thing with Moses, who was adopted as an infant by an Egyptian woman. Moses could never quite fit in with his Egyptian family, and so he found himself in constant internal turmoil as he daily saw the injustices upon his biological and hereditary family and people. So to achieve his ambitions, Avimelech went to the city of his mother's origin, Shechem, and there solicited report from her brothers and her father. And the proposition is stated in verse 2. Choose me to rule over you, or you'll be subject to 70 men, Gideon's Hebrew sons, ruling over you. Now, inherent in this conversation is that Avimelech was part Canaanite, as opposed to any of his brothers. And it was understood in these tribal cultures that blood mattered. The family of the leader or ruler would have advantages. Since it is taken for granted that the 70 sons of Gideon were Hebrews, they, on the other hand, would be far more inclined to show favor for their Israelite brethren over and above the Canaanites who lived among them. So we're told that this seemed to make sense to his mother's family, who were Canaanites, So, they took Avimelech's proposition to the other residents of Shechem and campaigned for it. Shechem was a mixed city at this time. It consisted of Canaanites and Hebrews living side by side, and you could bet there had been a lot of intermarriage as well. 
In fact, it was a mostly Hebrew city. It was generally under Israel's control. So it's not hard to understand why Avimelech's mother's family would see this as an opportunity to have as its own governor someone who was at least more sympathetic to the Canaanites due to their own Canaanite heritage. Yet it was, there's more to this than really meets the eye. Now, Shechem was a strategically important city. It lay at a crossroads of trade routes, north to south and east to west, that wove through this area. Shechem was also well situated in a, in a very fertile valley. All right. And just as key was that Shechem was also central in Israel's heritage and history. And it was both a place of spiritual and cultural importance to the Israelites. So if Abimelech could gain control of Shechem, as opposed to some of the other less revered towns, it would give him a political platform. It would give him a measure of credibility. And he'd be able to extract the usual taxes from the many caravans that necessarily had to pass through his territory. Now, there's so much at play in this chapter, we're not going to be able to delve into it all deeply. But we're going to add some details that will help us in later chapters. For instance, you will notice that while Gideon is referred to a number of times in chapter 9, he's only called Yerubael. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Take a look first at verse 2. This is where Avimelech asks his mother's family to speak on his behalf to all the men of Shechem. Or your Bible version might say all the citizens of Shechem. Or perhaps all the leaders of Shechem. The Hebrew word that's being variously translated as men or citizens or leaders is interestingly Baal. Baal. That's right. It says Avimelech is asking his family to plead his case to the Baals of Shechem. Now Baal, you see, is a Canaanite loan word in the Hebrew language. In other words, it's a Canaanite word that was simply incorporated as is into the Hebrew language. The same, by the way, goes for the word El, E-L, like in El Shaddai. And there are scores of others of those as well. But you see, Baal can be used in a number of ways, both theologically and commonly. Now, in a certain sense... It's not unlike the Hebrew word Adonai. In its common usage, Adonai merely means Lord or Master, a human, human being. However, after about 300 B.C., it was eventually used as a theological term that referred to the God of Israel because it was deemed inappropriate to pronounce God's formal name, Yehoveh. Now, Adonai could could, uh, correctly also be used to simply refer to a wealthy man or a powerful man. But Adonai was also used much the same way we today use the term sir. 
The word sir, on the other hand, as we follow it back, was coined in Europe in the days of aristocracies, and sir at first was a formal title, like Sir Arthur. But it can also be used simply to denote respect to anyone of any status, like when we say to somebody, sir or ma'am. So, what I'm getting at is, the use of Baal here in Judges is not theologically referring to gods in general, or is it referring to the specific chief god of the Canaanites, good old Baal himself. Instead, it's being used as a word of respect, or better, in this case, it's flattery. With its meaning more or less being, oh, you Canaanite lords. It's only because Abimelech is appealing to the Canaanites that he uses the term Baals. He sure wouldn't ever use that term to curry the favor of the Israelites. Thus, when we see the editor of Judges use the name Yerubbaal to refer to Avimelech's Hebrew father, Gideon, it's to make a point. Yerubbaal, Gideon, cut down Baal's image, fought Baal's people because he was an enemy of Baal. While Avimelech identified himself with Baal and Baal's people as a friend of Baal. This is just another of the hundreds of these important subtleties throughout the Old Testament that goes right over our heads. If we don't look at the Hebrew language and acknowledge the biblical context of an Israelite culture, we'll just miss it. Now, Abimelech's maternal family is so connected to Baal and Baal worship that they go and take 70 pieces of silver from Baal's temple called Baal Berit or the Covenant of Baal in order to help their brother, their family member, Abimelech, succeed. Now, they didn't steal that money, nor did they do anything wrong. Using temple treasury money for political purposes was quite normal in those days. The money was used to hire some good-for-nothings to do Avimelech's bidding. And these hirelings would be used as assassins to kill all of Gideon's sons. So the hitmen followed Avimelech to Ophrah and there killed 69 of Gideon's 70 sons. Avimelech actually made 71. The remaining one was the youngest, Yatam, who somehow escaped the slaughter. But you know, it's not like he was overlooked. Avimelech would have known that he got away. Now, verse 6 describes Abimelech's coronation. Now, let's get the picture, though, of just what he was going to be king over. There were only four towns under his rule. Shechem, Beit Milo, Arumah, and Thebes. Now, his territory probably extended a little bit further into some parts of the western tribal area of Manesha, but this sure wasn't much of a kingdom, let me tell you. So let's also understand that while this man saw himself as a king at the head of a monarchy, in fact, he was just a tyrannical dictator and a murderer. 
That's all he was. He ruled ruthlessly and vengefully and very unwisely. He was a thug like Fidel Castro or Saddam Hussein. He cared nothing for the people. He didn't know how to build an economy. He sure didn't know how to create loyalties and alliances. Now, archaeologists have actually uncovered Avimelech's place of coronation that we read about here. The pillar used was probably from Joshua's day. All right. The temple of Baal Berith, which you're seeing the, the, the uh, archaeological remains of it right down here, is also in the midst of the excavation. Thus we have Gideon's son being made king over part of Israel, but in covenant with the Canaanites and then taking his vow in the name of Baal. Now, is that a messed up deal or what? Now, folks, as ugly and horrendous as that coronation ceremony has to be in our minds, what difference is there between that and too many Christians who are bonded together by the interfaith movement? who makes it their platform that it is an acceptable and good thing to worship Allah or Hindi or Buddha or Jesus all for the sake of universal peace and harmony. That all divinity is equal and worth celebrating by any name we'd like to use. And of course, governments the world over applaud this as a wonderful display of love and religious tolerance. Have you ever found a shred of religious tolerance in the word of God? Have you ever found a single sentence that urges God's followers to show love to their neighbors by bowing down to their gods? No. You know, I shudder at what I see happening among some of my believing brothers and sisters within my own government led by leaders who advocate just this thing while at the same moment declaring a Christian faith. You know, what a blindness has enveloped us, just as it did in Israel in the days of the judges. In verse 7, when the surviving son, Yotam, heard of his half-brother's coronation, he took a very strange action that we read of in the next several verses. It says he climbed up to Mount Gerizim. And from there, he shouted out a prophetic parable as a curse upon Avimelech and the people who made him their king. Now recall, Shechem lay at the base of the... uh, The city of Shechem lay at the base of the twin mountains of Ebal and Gerizim. So Gerizim was quite an appropriate place for this oracle to take place. Almost two centuries earlier, Joshua had stood on this same spot and reaffirmed Israel's covenant with Jehovah. Now Yotam would use it as his pulpit. And he begins his parable of warning to the people of Shechem with the words, Shema, men of Shechem, that Elohim might Shema unto you. Remember, the Hebrew word Shema doesn't only mean to listen. It means to do what you hear. 
Shema is an action word. It demands action, not just passive acknowledgement. It is also instructive that Yotam uses the generic word of that day for God, Elohim, instead of God's formal name. By doing so, each of the men who heard his voice could fill in the blank of just whom they regarded as God. Remember, Yotam was talking to an audience of Canaanites, fallen Israelites, and the people of mixed heritage and spiritual loyalties. And then he begins an interesting parable that we that would have been very easily understood by those that were hearing it. And it was memorable enough to be accurately communicated to other people that weren't present there. It kind of goes like this. The trees in this parable, representing a group of people, in this case the citizens of Shechem, decide to anoint a king over themselves. So, says they invited an olive tree to be their king. Olive tree declined. Next, the trees offer the job to a fig tree that also rejected it. After that, they asked a grapevine to rule over them, and it too said no. Well, after having failed at finding one willing to be their king, they approached a bramble, a thorn bush. And the bramble responded that it would be honored to be their king. Ah, but with a catch. The meaning is this. The olive tree produces oil for the glory of God and for use by men. God created it for this purpose and it's a high calling. So the olive tree says, you know, that for me to give up this calling, merely to leisurely wave to and fro over some other trees would be a waste of my purpose and gifting. The fig tree explains that God created it to produce wonderful sweet fruit for eating. See, figs were the staple fruit of that region in that era. They were highly prized. And the fig tree says, you know, why would I leave that production of sweetness and goodness that you made me for just to rule over some trees? And the vine produces grapes that, like the olive tree, are used to bring both joy to God and man. To produce it, uh, to, to God rather, it produces, the, the vine produces the libation offering, the wine that's necessary to so many sacrifices and celebrations. For man, it was, a, it was the principal beverage in every home. It soothed the stomach. It tasted wonderful. It brought an extra measure of joy to parties and celebrations. The vine says, why would I exchange such a wonderful purpose and privilege that I've been given simply to be above some trees? The trees were asking the olive fig and the grapevine to leave behind their God-ordained usefulness in exchange for what men see as a higher social status. Wise men understand that to take on a leadership role must be the role God intended for them and not just a personal ambition or the motives are all wrong. 
Further, it's always best and more satisfying to be used for the purpose one was created rather than wishing we were created for another and different purpose that often men see as more important. To abandon our God-given gifts and assignment in His kingdom in favor of something that personally pleases us or other men is a terrible misuse of our gifts. Our value, listen to me, our value to the kingdom of God is and will always be in whom God made us to be. Not in how the world sees us. Or how we would prefer to see ourselves in the world. True contentment and peace is to discover those divine gifts and purposes and abide in them all the days of our lives for the good service to God and mankind that we were made in the first place. But the trees of Yotam's parable had thus far failed in finding the king, so they went to what they saw as their last resort, the bramble. The bramble is the lowest grade of plant life. And so any other position than the one it naturally holds for it would be a promotion. The bramble is hard, full of thorns and stickers, and it lies like a carpet on the surface of the ground. A bramble produces no fruit and certainly no joy. It's worthless, but to cause harm and be a menace to farmers and to other plants. It was especially dangerous during the summer months when it turned brittle and dry, it could easily catch fire, spread at an amazing rate, driven by the hot desert winds. And when it burned, it invariably caught other plants on fire as well. So the bramble replies that it will agree to be their king, but they must come down, the trees must come down and take shelter under its shade. And if they confer kingship on the bramble, but won't shelter in its shade, be in submission to it, then the bramble, it says, will burn those trees down. Of course, what's portrayed here is an absurdity of sorts. Brambles cling so close to the ground, they produce no usable shade, except maybe for unclean insects and reptiles. The reference to the parable, of the parable, to the bramble burning down the cedars of Lebanon is that cedars were considered the grandest and greatest of all the trees in the Middle East. They were the lords of the trees. Therefore, the bramble is saying that its fiery wrath at those who will not submit to shelter in its shade is so hot that even the greatest of the trees will be brought down and destroyed. Then comes the curse. Yotam says that if the people of Shechem have done a righteous thing in anointing Avimelech, and have been honest and fair with Yerubael's family and descendants, then all is well and good. Because that's how it should be, since whether the citizens of Shechem or Canaanite, Israelite, or foreigners, Yatom's father, Gideon, risked his life for their benefit. Everyone in the land of Canaan suffered when the Midianites and Amalekites came and stole the harvest and whatever else they could get those little pilfering hands on. 
Of course, this was a sarcastic sense. Because all who were present understood what had taken place. And as you, Tom reminded them, they were all complicit in killing Gideon's sons, except for himself and Avimelech, the two survivors. And then basically called Avimelech a bastard son by saying that Avimelech was merely the product of a slave girl owned by Gideon. Now the point of this was, of course, as an insult. Now Avimelech's mother, by the way, was not a slave girl. Then Yotam basically says that this bastard king is your Shechem's blood relative. So you'll be responsible for his actions and bear the consequences. Therefore, if everything they, that they and Avimelech was righteous, had done was righteous and good, may they enjoy one another. But if not, then may fire come out from Avimelech and burn them up, and may they in turn come out against Avimelech and destroy him. Now, Yotam, knowing that his life was in danger, worthless as a plugged nickel now, after this pronouncement, fled the area for a place called Be'er, so that Avimelech couldn't reach him. Now, probably this was to the south, probably an area that was under Judah's control, but we really don't know where it was, because Be'er simply means well, like in water well. And there were dozens of places in Canaan with that same name. Some conjecture, perhaps it was Beersheba that he went to. Anyway, it wasn't long before this sort of the self-serving and wicked Abimelech started having friction with his Shechemite subjects. You know, such kinds of people who ruled and those who ruled over that are capable of such heinous acts as callously murdering 69 brothers just so a personal ambition could be realized, they don't make easy companions for the long term. Trust wouldn't be the basis of this kind of a relationship, I don't think. So it wasn't long before trouble started. Verse 23 says it was three years. Now it appears that Abimelech did not live and rule from Shechem. Rather, he appointed an overseer, a governor named Zevul to deal with Shechem. The trouble that started was a direct result of God's intervention. It was that he sent an evil spirit, is what it actually says, between Abimelech and the Baals of Shechem. I'm using Baals in that term before. It's the same way that Abimelech used it as a, as a, as a flattery. God was going to use a demon to bring about the demise of Abimelech and his so-called kingdom. Does it surprise you that God would order an evil being, an evil minion of Satan to cause treachery among men? And that it was all to serve his purposes? Don't be. We're going to see this happen again in the matter of a man named Ahab. So as a result of a demonic attack, at God's command, the citizens of Shechem began to plot against Abimelech. Now, <clears throat> there would have been earthly and practical reasons for the Shechemites to go after Abimelech, at least in their minds there was. But in the end, 
The Lord using that demon fomented it. What was the main reason for the Lord to do this? Verse 24 explains. It was necessary to avenge the blood of the sons of Yerubbaal. Remember, one of the God principles established in the Torah is that murder, called blood, must be dealt with by executing the murderer. Always. The reason is that blood, another term for unjust killing, pollutes the land spiritually. And the only way that spiritual pollution ends is when the blood of the killer is spilled. Otherwise, the land is under the curse of the law. So God takes the matter in these lawless times, takes this matter in these lawless times into his own hands. And he arranges for the circumstances to bring the perpetrators, Abimelech and his henchmen, to justice. You know, it's interesting that even though the wicked plans of evil men can be hidden from people for a time, eventually it always comes to light. Further, it's interesting to me that it was a three-year period of time approximately that passed before the people of Shechem finally understood that they had been grossly deceived. So they wanted a change of leaders. It's going to be about three years from the time of his coronation as king of the world, swept into office by an adoring public willing to turn everything over to him before the world finds out the true intentions of the Antichrist. Next week we'll see how Avimelech's rule came to a rather predictable ending.